0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world, and this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at DominicMonkhouse.com. Today, I'm chatting to Spencer Gallagher and Pete Tool of Cactus. They were the founder, CEO and CFO, respectively, of a digital agency, Blue Halo, that they scaled up and sold. And what they've been doing after that is running their business called Cactus, which is a consultancy that specializes in helping digital agency owners get on that tricky point of the curve from sort of half a million, 750, past a million, million and a half, and and on their way to three to five million. And they've both recently co-authored a book called Agency Nomics, which we'll talk about, and some fascinating things that they've, data that they've captured along the way. The impact on employee net promoter score from organizational structure, and also some of the things that they found out around marketing and the lead flow 30-30-10 is one of the things that Spencer will share with us. A wide-ranging and fascinating discussion, I thought, so I hope you enjoy it. Cheers. So, I'm Spencer Gallagher. My life started uh, with an agency in
1: 1999, which I built through to 2008, um, sold it to a big ad agency, and then um, called Gyro, and now they're part of the Dentsu Network. And then in 2011, my former FTP, we started Cactus uh, as joint partners, and we are today the leading consultancy helping uh, agencies scale. More recently, Pete, you better say this a bit otherwise I'll do all the talking. More recently,
2: we wrote a book, <laughs> we've written a book. <laughs> and who are you, uh, Pete Hall? Um, I'm Spencer's business partner, worked with him since the Blue Halo days back in 2004 all the way through to now. Uh, my area of specialism is uh, CFO for agencies, kind of from the 1 million size to 5 million size in terms of helping them structure their finances
0: for growth, etc., cetera, around those kind of metrics. Fab. And Cactus, how, how long has that been going? Eight years now, isn't it? 2011, 12, I yeah, think we started. Eight years. Yeah. You've got some fab stats because I think you sent you sent out a New Year's email, which was sort of... We've helped this many people grow this many agencies. Can yeah. you get any of those stats off the top, apart from the ones we made um, up? No, we. I
1: think it was actually last year we, we stopped and we wrote down all of the clients we'd helped. Um, it was about eighty-five clients over the past eight years, and I say eighty-five more of the sort of full-time clients. We've actually helped over a thousand agencies in some shape or form over the past eight years. But from the 80s, 80, 80, it was 80, 85, We had a spreadsheet and we worked out the average growth had been just over. weirdly enough per annum which was pretty outstanding and you know I guess there's uh, some element of there's some smaller agencies in there that have had massive rapid growth several hundred percent but uh, and then obviously as they get much bigger they sort of start to slow down but as an average and and actually you know several of those clients have uh, been you know very capable of sort of qualifying for Deloitte Tech Fast 50 European Fast
2: 500 type league tables and stuff so what size agency do you typically work with? Typically, they're around um, 7,50 to a million in fees and upwards. Uh-huh. Um, most of them are looking to grow in some way, shape, or form to get to, you know, three, four, five million with a decent EBIT, so that you know, we used to say, well, they're going to grow and sell, but it's more around having choices these days. You know they get to that level and they can say, "Well, we're going to take the agency on further, do some acquisitions, sell or someone are just enjoying it and going to keep growing.
0: Yes, the sadistic when, ones. At, well, at <laughs> seven hundred and fifty thousand, so by the time they get to four million, either the sadistic or those pains you've helped them get get rid of those pains. Yes. yeah, hopefully.
1: Yeah, and I think when you get to a million EBIT and above from an agency perspective, there's lots more. In- advisors involved and maybe they've raised more money they've got more private equity or they may have big group uh, but agencies are often owned by groups and for us I think Pete and I we, we kind of like to have much more you know we like to work with the owner entrepreneurs or the shareholding uh, shareholders and I think you know who are more autonomous yeah. who we can go in we can show them uh, what we've learned over the, the past how many years almost 20 years I guess working in in agency world and um, I think we have more influence around that I always sort of say
2: you know I, you know, yeah, there's more immediate effects from, from our advice isn't it yeah if, simply if you turn over. can make a decision then they can go and act on it straight away and you know and then we can come back the next month and there's more things to do but if we worked for I don't know the subsidiary of a, a group company who owned an agency it would go up the chain of command and perhaps our advice wouldn't have the same effect which isn't as
0: motivating to us yeah, And do, how much of what you now know did you know selling Blue Halo and how much have you learned? Oh, great question. Um, Here's a great question. In <laughs> well, Delivering for the 85 clients you've helped.
2: Well, I'm not known for exaggeration, but I'd probably I say... <laughs> <laughs> I, 10 times as much. As yeah. I, I mean, I wrote on my LinkedIn profile, I think
1: 75% more, I think. But it, I mean, it could be more than that. I was a bit naive. I thought that... After building, after we built and sold Blue Halo, that we kind of knew everything. But you can't, even today, we learn new things every single day. So I think the truth is it probably is more like 95%. Because the world's moving and business is moving and we're seeing things
0: every day. I'm intrigued that that learning then is that you're having to help a client solve a problem or are they teaching you something that you didn't know?
2: A bit of both, I think. Yeah, for me, it's. Um, probably more having to work through the problems with the clients and when you've from my perspective i came straight out of practice into blue halo so i worked with one agency for four or five years i then worked with the group business for another two years or so and saw four or five more agencies if you think of all the different agencies i've been in different size structures working on different types you know different spaces with different sectors um it's kind of applying all the knowledge that i've got but with different people and there's often different outcomes which provides learning all the time
1: and for example um, we can go into an agency a lot of the time agencies want us to come in to help validate what they're doing right as much as what they're doing wrong and by validating what they're doing well and benchmarking what they do well sometimes we're like wow, you've actually done something better than anyone we've come across. How are you doing that? And then we do learn that way. But, of course, hopefully the things that we're then bringing is the things that they're not doing so well. And we're able to share those and also share what best in class looks like. It's not anti-competitive either because often it's not, you know, it's not something directly that's unique to anyone. It's just a, a subtlety in their an
0: idiosyncrasy in the way that they're approaching
1: a particular problem.
0: Yeah, well, it's just, you're bringing in that external benchmark, aren't you? So, you know, Somebody runs a meeting well. and You just say, "Look, you run really great meetings," or somebody runs a meeting poorly, and you, you guys could probably be forty percent more productive if if you just fix that. Even if not, even if nothing else got changed, yeah,
1: Yeah. definitely. There's no question. Every day we walk away. I just, you know, wow, that's amazing. There's something comes out of the business, the data, the approach. In fact, the recent one for me, really, actually, was. Penbock's business a long time now, but the, we got asked to go to America last year to go and help a client. We traveled over to Boise, Idaho, and the branding, the agency's approach to branding was just simply better than any other agency we've been into. And we kind of realized that sort of software style tech startups are really good at telling their story because they're always trying to raise money, they're pivoting. They've always got great stories, but actually agencies who think would have great stories because often there's creativity or brand at the heart of what they do, often are quite poor at their storytelling. And we went to Boise and we saw, didn't we, it was great agency and, and, and actually came back really and sort of said to a lot of the UK, so we were like, look, we've just got to work better on your brand story. You know, yeah. there's, and then recently we have got a client in Scotland called May Brave and brought us in and was like, after eight years in this job, finally walked in an agency and thought, Wow, these guys just do their agency branding, or not only their clients' brand, but their own branding. Just a great story as well. Great you know, and, and actually it's already now set a benchmark for what's everybody that, else what's to as in me telling their story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you should I get him on, actually, because he's... He, I mean, they've got this great video. they just filled their whole office up with those little plastic balls and yeah. their meeting everybody. Um The, the
0: story... What's he, what's he called,
1: I'll get him on? Uh, it's Andrew Dobby. And okay. they... Um, I'll get, to, I'll, I'll get to Yeah, the, the sort of the quick story was, you know, had a child and just decided that he didn't want to necessarily work for somebody else and wanted to see his son grow up. And he had like a, you know, a few hundred quid in the bank and literally in a small box went and set an agency up. And um, I think the whole premise was, you know, why would someone pay £3.99 for a cup of coffee when it should cost 99p? Well, they do that because there's a green logo on it and that's the value of brands. Yeah. So I'm going to – and that was his basic story. hope I told it well, Andrew. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, but it's more than that, much more than that because he lives – and they live and breathe every single touch point in their business. I mean, the thing I love the most is you go in the office – they they obviously know that their target audience is sort of 35 to 45 year olds so what you've got is um, every toy that you had as a child so when you walk in there there's something like there was a Batman car that fires matchsticks out the back I remember that I was nine years old and so there's you go in and there's an emotional connection to the business because you're like I had that car when I was younger, and all of a sudden you get you know that anchoring back to that memory of yeah. being you know we young and happy, and old and miserable. And no, I'm joking, um, but it's
2: little things like that, tiny little things. They do very, very oh, well. They've been going now seven or eight years, and they haven't lost that story. It's still part of their their DNA, and they still still tell that story. I think the point Spencer's making is that sometimes when we go into our clients, they had that in the beginning, and then it gets lost, and then you know they're kind of searching for their their purpose or their why, and it's why did we set this agency up? And they all know and can tell the story, but there's nothing out there to connect the clients with them emotionally to how, how why they started their, their oh, agency or, new, or why they're
0: doing it. Or new prospective employees. Well, yeah. You know, just that... Here's That's a, even more important in some cases. Yeah, here's a business with a purpose. Yeah. Somebody wanted to change something, do something. If they set the business up for that purpose, does that flow through into their work-life balance ethos?
1: If... They think work-life balance is important. I guess to their particular purpose. I mean, I, I think there's some businesses out there where the culture is like yeah. everyone's there and is something that's very important to have the work-life balance. I think most agencies, on the whole, I would say, are much more progressive with culture than other types of businesses. I mean, most brands and organisations, when they have an agency, they kind of almost go, "I'd like to work in here," because they were the, you know one of the first people to have. You know, the beanbags and the tennis, you know, to make the workplaces, you know, with the tech businesses, by the way, I mean, the tech and agencies, I say, are right at the forefront of this. They they have flexible working before probably a lot of large organizations put it in. They, as you, you've you had from your own podcast, they have unlimited. They have all of those kinds of benefits. Well, I saw unlimited holiday today, uh, Elvis, the agency has just brought in. So they, they tend to bring a lot of the new working practices earlier than, let's say, the general marketplace, So I think agencies are quite good when it comes to, although, and it's quite, this is quite a uh, contentious subject, I think the biggest stress that probably comes into agencies is actually the client demands, you know, the demands of the clients can be quite, because they're using an agency as an outsourced provider to solve a problem, you know, or that they don't have the expertise or resource to do. So what happens is... They sometimes can sort of, you know, put a lot of pressure on their agencies, which is hard for the team to manage. But, yeah, I think cultures and agencies are pretty progressive.
0: Flat structures,
1: pod systems, they're all there. So
0: the pod system segues me into the book because that's one of the things, the points you make in the book about structure yeah. is important. So uh, should we dive into that? Or yeah, let's do find it. It's especially subject to yours as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll wind, keep, hold the pod thing. Why Why the book? What? One How long book? did it take you to write this oh, well, book? Um,
2: probably about the same time as it took to paint the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> this is what it feels like. <laughs> I don't know. I think for Spencer and I's perspective, when we first set our business up, like we had probably a bit more free time than we have now, to be fair. You know, it was the early days. We are probably just starting out. And we thought we had some great stories to share. So um, we hired... Um, This girl, I can't remember her name, I feel bad now. Bryony. Bryony, of course. And she would call us you know, once or twice a week and we'd sit there and download stories to her and little tips and tricks. We started putting this Google Doc together. And as we got bigger, we kind of forgot about it really. And then um, maybe it was about two years ago now. South by Southwest, there was a lady speaking on stage, you remember? That's right, yeah. Literally it was two years ago this week. And we were like, "We've, we've got a book somewhere you sort of if search you, the archives and you're like, oh, there is a book in, in good And shots. she said on stage though, she
1: said the only way to finish a book is to go to, remember, go to a hotel, yeah. tell your husband or wife not to call you unless someone's died and just go to it and lock yourself away
2: so we came up with a plan to do that. We decided that. we were going to finish the book. We're going to that f- was yeah. Yep. Open the document and thought, actually, this is a good, a solid six out of seven start out of 10 for a book that we didn't, we'd forgotten we had. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So true. we then spent the next year or so, I would say it's probably around last. April time it was really coming together we went and spent our romantic weekend in Bournemouth together we did yeah for three months <laughs> uh, an experience as in it was hard writing the book <laughs> just, to, just yeah. to, clear, to clear that up um, and then it, it travelled yeah. um, and then it was um, evenings weekends dealing with copywriters etc getting it to the point where finally in September we could release it to the outside world yes yeah, we thought we'd only sell 130
1: copies yeah. right that was because the, there were only 16 and a half roughly thousand agencies in the uk so we always had it in our head that you know you get sort of 2% market share somewhere like that it's such a niche business book right to help an agency grow from startup or zero up to the first 3 to 5 million it is incredible how many we've sold. I mean, we're yeah. quite still quite surprised. We got to today, number yeah. one in the Amazon, you know, uh, charts for advertising and uh, also the, for marketing as well. So, and now we, so twenty percent of book sales are coming from the rest of the world, mainly uh-huh. America, and that's just amazing. So, and what's it called? It's called Agencynomics. In fact, really, I should credit Pete because. I forgot to say I was also our head of brand.
2: Pete <laughs> <laughs> came up with a name, which is genius. Yeah. And doing- uh, it was basically um, the little phrase I used. When I used to go networking, I used to talk to agency owners, and they'd always tell me that they were doing 400,000 a month. Uh, but what they were doing was taking their best month ever, adding VAT and times by 12. And rather than calling bullshit on it, I would say, well, it's Agency Nomics. It was a little phrase I had to yeah. whisper to Spencer. <laughs> i heard another Agency Nomics. Uh, you know how people always talk about so their business like they're a year ahead of where. Well, some people do. Three years ahead.
1: Three <laughs> years ahead, yeah. And I think I think actually it can be quite damaging. And, and Pete and I realized that someone once came back to me and said, oh, you know, well, it's just not fair because Agency X is making 30% and we should be too. And I was like, I know they're not. I went in, they did it one
2: month, right? That's not a 12 yeah. months of 30%. There's two reasons, really. One, to set the record, kind of the record straight and put something down about agency KPIs and the real yeah. truth. And secondly, actually, we quite like the name Nomics, really. So we, we trademarked it a couple of years ago, um, kept that safe somewhere in the, in the drawer. And yeah. actually, when we came to thinking of a working title for the book, it was just like Nomics. That's just what it is. Yeah. We called it Spaghetti. Do you remember originally? I did originally, yeah. Yeah. In like 2011, 12. Yeah. Yeah. Because we were like unraveling the spaghetti of of agencies and yeah. how they're run. You know, many people wearing many hats and it's a bit yeah. of a mess. What are the themes for the book then? I think there's, there's sort of four cornerstones, you know, in,
1: in business, but, you know, especially in agencies. There's, if we go to an agency, it's always one of four problems it's either the sales and marketing. The finance and the cash, is the HR and the talent, or it's the process and delivery. So we kind of mapped out really our chapters around those four areas. Yeah, and um, I think we shared everything that we thought, when we go into an agency, dispel some of the myths and share some of the the practices that people and the approaches and the mindset you need to grow an agency. For example, a lot of agencies don't really know I think where they think new business comes from isn't actually where it comes from. So we kind of dispel that myth and share our methodology from everything we've learned around how business actually comes into agencies. How does it really come in?
0: And how do they think? What's the
1: when um, Blue Halo got sold, the CEO of the company that bought us said, Once the uh, the deal is all sort of public, come up to our offices, we'll get a glass of champagne, and I- I'll share with you the secret of agency new business. Now, having grown this agency for nine years and doing marketing and, and you know, doing quite a good job, right? We grew 1100% uh, over a five year period. We were a Deloitte Tech Fast 50, a European Fast 500 business. But I was like, there's a secret? You know, wow, like no one told me there was a secret. So went up, met him, and he started to show me all his sales process. And I was like, no, 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 no. Who's your biggest client? And he said, well, it's Brand X. And it was, you know, a very well-known brand. I said, I don't know how much they spent with you last year. And he said, $8 in fees. And I said, well, how did you win that client? He said, uh, she's my next-door neighbor. Oh, well, he's your second biggest client. And it was another major well-known Japanese brand. And uh, how did you win that client? So how much did they spend with you last year? Five million in fees. He's the best mate in my triathlon club. Who's your third biggest client? was uh, another well-known airline. And how much did they spend with you last year? Three and a half million. How did you win that client? Oh, well, the person in the marketing team's best mates with the person in our, in our business development team and so on he so said I went through the top 10 clients and what I realised was it was nothing to do with the sales process actually there was a huge amount to do with the personal relationships and the networks of the people in the business now that Made me think a bit deeper about that and wondered how pervasive that was. In We both sort of went back and started to kind of compile a big spreadsheet of all of the ages we met. So every time we meet someone now, we always go, who are your top 10 clients and where has the business come from? And we went through a billion pounds worth of pipeline. Uh, you know we, we're very lucky we're at £50 million pounds worth of agencies now anyway so we you know we are seeing we're seeing £150 million pounds worth of, of deals every year throughout our agency so you know we're constantly monitoring this and what we found was that there were four key areas that, that new business leads were generated from and what was happening was 90% of agencies were spent pretty much 100% of their time focused on the area that was only bringing in about 10% of the leads so, so here's the example so um, um, the second client we went into, do you remember the guys in Chester? Yep. We walked into the room, they gave us a tour, and they walked, they, they opened this door up and there was a, a lady and they said, This is this is Debbie from marketing. I said, like, oh hi Debbie, what are you doing? She had a whiteboard in front of her. And she had, and it had Habitat, had like uh, uh, like Top Shop, Top Man, all these retailers written on the wall. I said, "What are you doing, Debbie?" She goes, "I'm, I'm ringing them up." And I'm, and i um, we, we know we work with uh, Next law Ashley, so we're ringing them up. And I'm, I, I, you know, telling them we're really good at retail, and we should work with them. And I said, "How long have you been doing that for?" She goes, six months." So how much have you won? She goes, "Nothing." And I said, "Well, you won't win anything either, because." You won next Laura Ashley because of the networking that the CEO did, and I'm not saying you never win a deal right from doing a cold call because I've got we've got stories. There's always examples.
2: There's always examples. Some will say, "Oh well, I won a hundred grand deal doing it."
1: But it, the point was, is there's no mix. There was no mix. It's like you know, they get they get cool marketing businesses eight years ago on the whole. You know, to go out and try and find new business. But when you're selling a service, people are buying your chemistry and trust and capabilities. not a product sale as much as maybe it is in other spaces where there is a product element, there's a technology element, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we just started to perfect this methodology. On the whole, what we're saying to people is, you know, create a multi-pronged attack on your marketing. And um, But by sharing where people get business from, it stops people spending a lot of time and money spending it on areas where they're not getting business from. Yeah,
0: spending on where they think the competition is winning. And yeah. because they just don't know. And they haven't done their own, their own analysis. They don't know what they don't know. Yeah.
1: They don't know what they don't know, yeah. So. so how can you...
0: But how could you get more if it's from the CEO? So what you're saying is you get... The CEO wins through networking. Don't well, spend it on Betty in the back room getting on the phone. and The CEO's got to go out and do some more networking. I, I mean, that's, I guess, where
1: it starts in the early stages of, of an agency. Of course, um, once our agencies have set up um, a better marketing mix of, you know of activity they're able to get more brands to come to them Mean what more, more help the team build better networks because you know in the early days the ceo's probably the only person who out of the business but actually as the business grows you've got many more people who can do that so for example a lot of agencies and we've got one client's got six or seven people who speak in that business at events and they're all you know, come across with because it's only really the the owners carry a certain amount of passion evangelistic you know they i call it manifest trust they build yeah. trust through their authority and that authority actually in today's world you know where people can build their personal brands and their influence anyone in the team can do that that's actually really helping to augment so some businesses say six seven speakers in the business who are authorities on areas and that's building trust in chemistry and therefore more leads I mean,
0: but i don't think you're i mean the thing that struck About reading the book, which is why I wanted to get you on the podcast, is I don't think the things that you say are actually just applicable to agencies. Now, obviously, they might be more applicable to agencies, and the stories you tell in the book are agency specific. But I see that all the time, more broadly, where clients don't know how they've—they've just never sat and thought about it. Yeah, Um, you know, MDs who really have won all the business and then want to hire a salesperson. Yeah, sort of retire from selling and that's just going to be a disaster. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that CEO
1: of that 100 million pound business, I mean, I, I remember reading a lot ago actually about the guy from GE Money, but he spent all his time still dealing with sales even though he was running GE, Glo- not GE Money, was actually GE um, General Electric globally. But the CEO of the HC board, I see, he was pretty much still in every, I mean, he rocked up for every pitch. I mean, he didn't necessarily do the presentation like probably he did when he was smaller because he had a team of people to do that. But his presence was still there because he needs to show the customer or the potential customer that, hey, you're an interesting, you know, you're important. Which goes to show how important that is, really. I mean, what size business was that? 50 million? Yeah, 50 to point? 100 million. Yeah, at that point, 50 million. And, you know, he, look, he wouldn't come into probably every single small bridge but anything of significance, he's going to be there to show the importance. You're right. We find a lot of people recruit salespeople in agencies, expect them to do all the selling, but not really realizing as a sales Professional, they're much better and they're given a lead than if they are having to go out and find them. Again, not saying there aren't people out there who do that very well, but if the marketing person in the agency And the owner can really augment some lead generation and then pass it through uh, to the salesperson to help manage that process, to ask those difficult questions. It does help. And you've got sort of a magic ratio, haven't you, for that? We call it the 30-30-30-10, you know, because what we identify was 30% of business was coming from what we call NEST, which is Networking, Speaking, Thought Leadership and Events, we identified that 30% was coming from strategic partnerships, which is actually probably one of the areas that agencies are either really good at or just don't have a clue. And then the next one, which is the most common area, which is client referring you to another client or a client leaving and going to it. a marketing director, leaves, goes to another brand because they worked with you before and they trust you and they know you you know your stuff they bring them with them mm-hmm. again it's a service business not a product so you kind of need to know that your agency's got your back they're gonna make you look good in your job and then the last 10 percent area comes from what we call outbound so it, it's Look, every lead in your agency should be inbound from all four areas, but we call it outbound or the 10% area, mainly because a lot of the activity was very much the push side. So it was the cold call. It was maybe things like PR, uh, maybe it was things like social media. The truth is, is that that area has probably grown a bit since, you know, trust is becoming more, you know, easier to, to online now, right? I mean, like people will trust people because of their persona online because we look at the you know if they're uh, some position of influence then it is building but nevertheless um it's still you know not more than probably 20 percent in the majority of agencies mm-hmm. so yeah so and when we go to agency i'd say they do two out of those four areas well yeah the agencies for example that are very good with clients leaving and taking them with them the client ref- or they get client referrals they tend to be the ones that grow the slowest yeah, uh because they just rely on their clients to grow their They're business. Like inwardly focused and outwardly focused. Yeah. The conversion rates are much higher. And then um the people that focus on the strategic partnerships and maybe the nest the networking speed they tend to grow this- faster and the ones that spend more air in the 10% area tend to have very low because the 10% area typically converts about like seven to nine percent because a lot of the inbound leads that are coming in from outbound activity like even like search they tend to convert a lot less and we've got lots of data to back this up and it and it and there's, there's some great leads come from that area, but it tends to be a lot more work. So there tends to be a lot more confusion in those agencies around um, the time they're spending to win and not to yeah. win deals. So that, that was kind of one thing. And then the other thing really was just getting, helping agencies qualify better as well, because that was, you know, a lot of people going after leads that just, they had no chance of winning.
0: Bidding for work that they're never going to win. And yeah. putting time, in agency world, putting a lot of time and effort. Yeah. A lot of yeah. creative effort into a bid that they just can't win. Yeah. But qualifying is always... I think
1: actually we have, because we, we know each other, right, because of Wire Yeah.
0: Because
1: we both sit on the board there. And it's funny, Kevin, who who looks after the agency partners, he always says to me how agency is just, you know, good. he's a professional sales guy. He's always saying, they just don't qualify stuff. And I'm like, I know, you know, it's like the, probably the first thing we teach everybody is, in fact, I think the pipeline software system we use, people win about 50% of the deals they go for. Whereas when we go in and they're using some kind of CRM pipeline tool, they're winning like maybe 10% of what goes in there. So we get people working... Um, smarter mm-hmm. on less opportunities and pitch to win or you know if they're not having to pitch because other people then propose to win well,
0: and then you can pull the CEO in because it's not so many and all of that stuff and then you just feel more energetic about yeah, the business momentum like, gets yeah. winning <laughs> a few deals yeah and, like winning 1 in 10 just makes you feel well it sucks oh, you just can't be asked and then your quality goes down and then poof. so what you said that was one of the cornerstones then Talk about cash because then that gets Pete the chance to get a word in. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, there's a few
2: things that are covered in the book, and I suppose um, cash flow management being my area of you know, specialist chosen subject. If I was on mastermind talking about agencies over the number of years, because actually most of them are they do struggle for cash flow. So when I'm going into agencies, it's the first thing I'm looking at. You know, do they have any bank facilities? Do they have the right level of bank facilities? Uh, what are they doing with their their cash flow forecasting, how are they managing their debtors, what's their invoicing profile. So for me, that's been, you know, that's kind of the, the the area of key focus going in. What I found with most agencies is that, and this probably applies to, you know, any service business really, but it's been something that stood out for me is that if you're making, you know, less than 10% net profit and the debtors are taking more than 45 days to pay on average, then you never see the cash. So in that respect, it's going to be very hard to, to grow or even sustain an agency without having some sort of tight cash flow management in place. And then moving on to then having the right people in place, which is one of the things I talk about in the book, and having the right person for the right size business. So you wouldn't go and recruit, I mean, it sounds obvious, right? It's not rocket science, but you wouldn't recruit a underground ERFD when you're turning over 750K. It's not, not necessarily an underground salary. It's a problem. It's the fact that they will only be working half a day a week out of five because there will be nothing to do in the business. <laughs> So it's just finding the right person, having the right structure as you grow, um, just getting the right things done. Really, there's certain things in the business that you've got to have on time. You know, bank reconciled, so you know where that position is. You know, your accounts done within two weeks of month end, so you can see where you are. Cash flow forecasting, looking out that way, it's one or two reports like that are quite key, really. And it doesn't take that long with the right level of resource to get that in, just to give you a bit more reassurance about where you really are. Yeah. And one of the big metrics in the book, Pete, as well, which is,
1: which does have an impact to cash flow rate, is the the kind of the wage it's the wages.
2: Big. Yeah, yeah, it's something that's. I mean, it's one one of the the biggest uh, things that we focus on actually of our agencies, and I think we learned this a long time ago. I think it's perhaps something that we kind of found by accident running our business. We kind of had a really good, I would say, finger on the pulse. Yeah our level of resource needed to be um, but actually when we were acquired one of the things that the CFO took me aside and said look there's a, you know, there's a few metrics we'd like to focus on and one of those things is wage cost to GP um, so as we've you know taken this into our consulting life now it's one of the things that we focus on you know having that uh, you know the weight, total wage cost of the business being no more than 63% of the of the gross profits is a very very <coughs> good indicator of whether you've got enough Enough people in the business, or whether you're spending too much money on people, it's the biggest cost in the agency. So, you know, being at 70 75% mark, if you go away and you know, crunch the numbers right now, it's going to be very unlikely that you're making any profit, uh, which is going to cause you know, greater pressure on cash and you know, stagnate any potential growth further.
0: And what's the secret sauce behind 63? The secret source. Well, I don't think or it's necessarily, necessarily secret just,
2: source. It's just, just looking, it's looking at the you know can huge, vary a bit as well, right? I mean, it it can, yeah. the swings. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we kind of work with a number between high fifties to high sixties, depending right. on where the agency is in their growth cycle, where they are geographically. I mean, bizarrely, we acted for an agency in Liverpool, but where Liverpool is geographically, it's out on a little peninsula, so it's kind of isolated the wage costs were actually quite high to attract people to come you know and stay in Liverpool and work rather than you know trying to attract people from Manchester where there are abundance of agencies yeah. so there're kind of you know nuances to this but broadly you know that's it, it's come from learning from looking at 80 90 100 agencies over the last 7 8 years really and again those numbers will be just as applicable to any other service businesses an yeah potentially I think um, you know if you're an accounting business for example you've got a very similar model you sell time the day rates are reasonably <laughs> similar but what will happen is the, the staff rates will be lower because there's a lot more accountants out there than there are you know brand specialists or strategy guys or designers or whatever Right. because there's still a, I feel a bit of a shortage in, in the industry in terms of decent people so that the, the kind of the rates for a, a service based business are kind of higher right. Right, than they would be uh, for example I know someone who's a a qualified solicitor at the moment working for a top 20 firm earning £26,000 a year which is about the same as a you know a graphic designer who's been there about 18 months right now. So yeah. there's a comparison. Yes. Yeah.
1: And actually on the cash it though there's the other thing we see a lot is we go and sometimes it's the opposite and there's loads of cash because maybe they've been worried about taking on facilities they've been maybe protective over money and they store up reserves and we do still find that quite common, and then we've yeah, also got yeah, another often,
2: problem. Often, the worst-run of businesses. Yeah, maybe.
1: and often the highest-risk businesses. Yeah, where, yeah. Ironically, even they've got loads of cash to bank
2: because hmm. they become as they get more mature, they get quite complacent because they're like, "Well, we've got you know, seven hundred fifty k in the bank. We're turning over two million quid, so we're we're in a pretty safe place." But that means that things slip, so they get a bit more lax at chasing debts. They don't worry so much about could get a contract signed. They don't get stage payments signed off. And then before you know where you are, you're in a place where I go into one of these agencies and I'm saying, well, guys, out of your 400 grand of, of debt sold right now, 200 of it is over six months old. And then it's a really big problem. We had a case ourselves, didn't we, where our biggest yeah, cash
1: of client basically had the biggest bad debt last year. Because they took on the work, they had
2: the cash. wasn't didn't redo the due diligence. And, and the commercials are, are quite lax, but if you go into a smaller agency where they're literally fighting for every penny, yeah, they will chase every debt down. They'll get every stage payment signed off, every contract. They're chasing right. sales. They're much more driven. Yeah, so they tend to be the fastest growing businesses, but it's more driven by a fear of. Yeah, we never dying. had any cash, and we grew fast. <laughs> we did. Yeah. We were, we were thinking, shit. You know, I mean, if we if we don't close some business, we could be out of business ourselves in two three months we we always have yeah. that and we use every penny to invest yeah, in growing to into growth, to back into growth and you yeah. know not
1: everyone does that right some people want to have a lifestyle business and just and stay the same i don't want to
0: give away all the stuff you've written in the book people should buy the down oh book. there's tons but, more don't uh, worry uh, no, no i know, <laughs> I, know this. I, I just thought I'd seg- we'd segue into maybe culture and um and org structure i know they're not necessarily the same thing but but it's sort of both are on the people side of the of the fence and so, what's your that you, you talk about pod structures? Yeah. in the book, uh, and certainly that's something that I've used before, and I see now that people are describing that as agile management, and it's the it's the coming thing. It's funny; I thought we invented it, but when you, <laughs> but when you go out, you kind of
1: realise that you like you talked about it from from you know the infrastructure world, stuff, where you the tech world where you came from, and. But I guess we discovered it like all like all good businesses are right you you kind of you try things, you make mistakes, you pivot, and you you know you try new things, and we kind of discovered we actually called them eco teams because they were self sufficient teams, and then we used the word pods because it you know guess it's peas in the pod, and it kind of makes sense but actually um so i guess we we found it when we were at blue halo mm-hmm. we tried many different structures hierarchical and we just found that no one really when there was hierarchies, no one really took... Often people would drop balls and wouldn't, wouldn't take responsibilities. That was our personal experience. Mm-hmm. There was lack less ownership. Yeah,
2: that was the key thing.
1: And we wanted to find a way that we could get, you know, people to take more ownership. So we'd experimented. And in agencies in particular, there's a big problem when they start. And there's a big historic problem because... Historically, you know a hundred years of agencies i mean pretty much from the end of the eighteenth century when agencies first started through to the beginning of the of, of the 21st century you know agency business hadn 't really changed. it was an account director or client service director, an account director, an account manager, an account exec, and then a graduate at the bottom. And this kind of like hierarchy would basically look after client needs. But there were two skills they would provide, which is one is, you know, client services, communication and, and, and strategic planning. And the other one was project management. Now, when the tech world started becoming more pervasive with you know, digital site, the digital agency started to build, they were full of project managers. And we had account managers, we had project managers as well. And what we found was that most agencies have a role that's like, called an AMPM. So what that means is that you got one person doing two different jobs. One is, and ironically, they're, they're just complete opposite ends of the spectrum. You need a highly detailed, often more introverted person to the project management, internal looking, and someone much more expressive and extroverted often. And not, I'm not, yes, not, not in general. So in in general, the... broadly yeah. speaking, who can look after the client and deal with you know, the marketing managers who are like them. And so uh, what we realized was by decoupling that role from the traditional model and creating two separate roles and then, and then creating a, a third role in the team into the pod, we could manage a client from end to end, offer a client-centric approach in a much more sort of flat structure based way. And the three people as a group could take ownership of any client from end to end and solve their problem.
2: Yeah. So I guess that's where we started with it, yeah. and then we well, it was about the ownership thing because as we were, were growing, it was kind of we kind of need to to spread the management of clients over over more people rather than coming up to the, the top of a pyramid because that was stopping us growing. Yeah, you know, dragging you back into the business when you know all, we were trying to push you back out of the business to try and win your business.
1: Yeah. I guess we're a bit weird in our pod structure because our pods are just three people, whereas some people will group all of the creatives, the technical people and the management into one unit. Yeah. We don't really do that. We say, look, keep the talent pool, the talented people who do the, the billings, keep them you know, in this talent pool, keep the client-centric pods. If you imagine, uh, I guess, trying to explain this so people can listen to it, but um, if there were sort of three columns, we have the talent pool in one column, people delivering the work. We have in the middle what we call the client pods, so the AM, the PM. And it's someone who's a subject matter expert is the third person in the pods. So in a digital agency, that could be like a business analyst or producer in a brand agency. It might be a planner or it might be a strategist or brand strategist. And again, depending on the agency. And then in the third column, you'd have the people working on the business strategy. So you'd have the marketing, talent, HR. And that's kind of roughly how it works. But what we find is businesses we work with with flat structures because we use this tool called Office Vibe they all have extremely high employee net promoter scores okay. like they are significantly higher I mean I
2: I haven't more actually got more empowered more engaged
1: yeah I mean it's just it's evident to us the difference between those that's I and mean, by the way we kind of give the owners a choice do they want to build a hierarchy or do they want to they, you know there's a choice there because some people want to have five reports you have five reports you have five reports
0: and, and it's a mindset thing isn't it if that's what you want to do it's, yeah like it's it's really hard if they've never worked anywhere else I call it a leap of faith, just yeah. because there's no sign. You know, you could try and prove it to people, but actually, it's just an emotional decision, isn't it? Yeah. People are sort
2: of well, until they do it themselves. Some people they just they just need to be able to, to prove the model themselves. It's all very well going out into the marketplace and talking with peers, but some people just absolutely just need to get on with it and see it happening.
1: Yeah, we have a
2: client, um, you know, who's
1: got a flat structure, and it's quite interesting. Someone. One of the account managers on her first day at work wrote this blog article saying, "I've come to this business and I've just started, and it's really great. It's been a business where everyone's equal, you know, and yeah, there are people who know more than others, who have more accountability, more responsibility than others, but we're all. It does We've been here one year or fifty years. We're all we're all one unit. We all work together for the greater good of the company, and actually." Someone went on, and I think I shared the post, the blog article. It was a beautiful blog. I mean, to have it from someone starting in a job as as a graduate. And I saw about two competitors going, oh, that won't last. You can't scale a business that way. But, as you know, I I went through, I read, I listened to uh, Peter Drucker, the famous management consultant. There's a summary of all of the talks he ever did. Mm -hmm. I'm going to quote, it's wrong now. But he told a story about how the British Empire, when it had looked after... Um, when well, it was responsible for India it run the whole of India on 1,000 people with no hierarchy He was saying you know you can scale these things if you actually you know if, if, if they are scalable but most people and he said that he had when he was at Hewlett Packard there was like 250 layers of management I think it was something like that probably back in the 80s and 90s which just sounds horrendous I mean
0: just take you back that ENPS yeah What's a great ENPS in your client base, and what's a, an OK ENPS? So that you just said you said flat hierarchies were oh, better. I can tell you now that the last couple of hierarchical
1: ones were. I would say between minus 10 and plus 10 uh-huh. uh, EMPS. And I'd pretty much say that all of the flat structure clients we've got are somewhere between 25 and 75. Yeah, yeah that's fair. I was going to say 50 average. Yeah, yeah definitely 50 to 60. In that 55... I mean, we've, we've got two at around 70 mark. At the yeah. Moment, so. And then, you know, okay, these are sort of maybe 30 to 50 size businesses.
0: Yeah because um, that's where we kind of specialise but it's uh... no it's just I was, I was with the client the other day and they were saying that EMPS was 30 and that the feedback that they have been able to get from elsewhere that 30 was amazing and so they felt that... they felt that 30 he, is amazing. I, thought, mean, I, I mean, it is amazing. So they were... They, they were like, this is not our problem. And yeah. I said, and, I, and I was just trying to push them and say, 30, really?
1: Yeah. 70, Wouldn't 70? it be great 70. if it was 70? Yeah. yeah. It's funny, I, I get, if they say me it's 50, I'm a bit like, you can get higher than that. <laughs> <laughs> the most important thing is that they're benchmarking it because you're listening to people and you've got to benchmark... You know, a lot of people don't do p s right? So it's like, if you do it, then you can at least... You've got to, a. We were speaking earlier on that was saying that um I've noticed that in December and January, you know, these scores tend to go down a bit. Because people get a bit miserable through the winter in the UK, especially. Um, so there are always things that impact, you know, the results as well. So um
0: what else what else about culture? What else do you know about culture that people um, So we've talked about org structure, measure MPS, org structure impacts.
1: I think when when, um, people are trusted to do a good job, they'll go and do a good job. And when you remove power and authority, you just take away all of the politics and all the problems. The business just is more empowered and just someone said the other day, it's like um, if you went out of your house every morning, so you don't ring up someone and say, hey, just letting you know I'm getting on the bus now. Or, you know, you don't, you don't report it to anyone. In, in your normal life, you do not have to report to people. There's a set of rules, right? You know, you can't murder people. You know, you can't abuse people in whatever. You can't, you know, you can't break laws, of course. But, you know, you, you know, in society, we don't need to report to anybody in life. We all grow, We go to work and all of a sudden we've got people we've got to report to and we've got to justify what we're doing to it and actually it doesn't really make sense and we all know why you know um, there's a great book I always rant on about which is in fact one of your other podcast um, interviews mentioned it the guy who did the Unlimited who did the Unlimited holiday oh yeah yeah no the wages was it the way he was yeah, the yeah. choose your own select your own salary it's Frederick Lallou, um Reinventing Organisations yeah. which I completely urge anyone to read because I think by the time you've read that book you know all the things you talk about the Gallup survey and stuff he covers all of those things and he was saying you know uh, he just tells great stories about how and it gives examples of very large companies where they've been totally they create this democratised workforce almost and all of a sudden it creates just much more just much better working places. Henry, Henry
0: Stewart who I yeah, interviewed a while ago when he's doing a sort of an event with clients he'll say just think about the best piece of work you ever did and then he says, okay, so now you've got that fixed in your mind. So was that because your boss managed you to do that? Or was that something you did on your own? Yeah. And nobody ever puts the hand and says, you know, it was when I was being managed No, no, it's to be yeah. managed. No, exactly. it's like, you know, awful stuff. What else? Give me one more other thing, Pete. What's another thing? One that more you other know? thing. Um
2: for me, I'll tell you one of the things I bang on a lot about with um agents as they grow is commercial process. Yeah. You know that I spoke about it earlier when we mentioned the cash flow and you know the lack of people having contracts or getting contracts signed or you know, POs or that kind of thing. And it's just for me the one biggest complaint I have about working with agencies, is just that no one, no collection of individuals seem to care about it. Like the FD might might care because he's not getting paid. But that always goes all the way back to new business? Did they get a contract signed off? Was the contract good? Was it explained to the client? Was expectations set? All the way through to we're now delivering, let's get sign offs at every stage, let's get invoices out regularly, let's get paid regularly. That for me is my my biggest Bugbear. So, if there's one thing I could leave everybody from, you know, listening to this today is to go away and kind of have a mini audit of your commercial process, starting from when a lead comes in to delivering a finished product. What are the legal, financial, commercial touch points all the way through? Have you got a tight enough contract? Is there good enough process? Is there communication between? You know, new business and project management handing over to project managers, talk to finance people regularly, all that
0: kind of stuff. Uh, And 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 also, i I just throw in the elapsed times, you know, because what's stopping you getting a quote out in an hour? Why does it take five
2: days? Well, let's speak, you know, bluntly, it should be one of the most important things going on in any agency right now. You know, if you've got a, a hot lead... For me, it's, well, let's get the quote out. Let's get on the pitch. Let's go and close, some, close some business. You know, There's not, not fanny around with something that isn't as important as that, to be honest. So.
0: <coughs> okay. So um, I, at the end of uh, podcasts, I always ask people two questions. The first one being, knowing what you know now, if you went back in time, is there anything you'd fix? Well, yeah, and not in the sense that you have any regret I remember asking had this conversation with Mike Tobin and he said "No, it's not a regret thing it's just a I you mean, to go back and go oh, what about lifestyle great. it would have been what is the yeah, what is the sort hey, of the, what, ah, yeah, what about yeah,
1: lifestyle versus scalable because when we started we were like we went into businesses and we were like well, listen, we built a soul, so you should do that
2: too. So I think we assumed We've that kind of everyone, matured in our thinking now, yeah? Yeah, we have. Everyone that appointed us wanted that as well. Yeah. But I think yeah. the, the opinion has matured, and I kind of touched on it. We spoke about it earlier. It's about getting people now to a place where they have a choice rather than... We're getting you to a place where you have to sell because not everybody wants to sell. Some people are, you know, built to last. Some people are built to sell. But at a certain size agency, you do have a choice in terms of what you want to do. And we know a few people who run agencies between the five and 10 million pound turnover mark who have made that choice. Some of them have remained independent. They enjoy going in every day and. Being entrepreneurial and running your agencies. Some people have then gone on an acquisition strategy because that's kind of their next phase and they're really enjoying that. Uh, there's a guy on the South Coast at the moment um, who was a 2 million turnover agency, you know, four or five years ago. And he's been on the acquisition trail now and he's now 13 million. He's absolutely loving it. Um, but, you know, he could have got to 5 million and sold. So for me, it's just about getting... Yeah, we're kind
1: of, I guess sorts. you're reminding the lifestyle guys... To squirrel away for for their retirement rather than just using their drawings for their living and not kind of and then at the end bringing us up when they're sixty years old saying hey like I I want to sell my business now having pretty much just drawn all the money out of the business for the past twenty years and realizing that there's not a lot of value it's quite late now for us to help them so making sure if you go lifestyle prepare for it. If you're going to scale, prepare, you know, for the plan. And I think we've probably changed off. We're not yeah, as,
2: definitely. we're not as one trick pony. That's, uh, I you think know. to be fair, when we first started doing this, a lot of people called us because of what we'd done before. Yeah. And it was kind of that, well, you know, you guys have been there and done it and can you help me kind of do it. But doing it now is not necessarily getting me to a point where I can sell. Yeah.
0: It's
2: yeah. I've heard a place where, you know, I, I want to get to, to achieve my goals. Whatever they may be, yeah, I've heard. You know, I
1: heard people say, "Oh, yeah, but you did that ages
2: ago." Now, and so that's why I guess the
1: you know, doing what we've done now for the last eight years has really superseded almost what we did at Blue Halo because we're much more current. We're, more, yeah. you know, with what we do now, we're working with much more modern
2: probably businesses than probably we ever were. We've also got probably ten more case studies where we bought and sold agencies yeah. between you know now and when we exited out. see what's also interesting
1: as well is. If you were creative or, or an engineer, which a lot of agencies are owned by either creators or engineers, I mean, some were more entrepreneurs, um, those guys are often, I use the word often, less likely to scale organically. On the whole, like most creatives, tend to grow a lot slower long periods of time because they care about the products. And same with the, the engineers, you know, they care about what they do. They do a they do a better job than the sales driven, you know, entrepreneurial owners. Well,
0: and I, well, I find that that type of people, yeah, find it really, really difficult to hire yeah. salespeople. Because yeah. they only want to hire. I have ethical name. people well, that it's not, it's not, <laughs> not ethical but it's, ethical, but it's, ethical, it's like but you
1: know yeah. it's just
0: they sit in a room and they go I'm not a salesperson I don't really so can you sell you can excellent you're hired and then they go yeah. I've hired three salespeople and they've got none of them I'm, I'm, I'm going to abandon the sales process because every time I hire a salesperson it doesn't work out for us and they go back. they yeah. retrench back to their slow growth so on that note Pete, I mean well i think um, i knew where you yeah go with it. <laughs> i think it was you know probably
2: i don't know it wasn't an epiphany at all but i think having done this two or three times now with you know smaller creative businesses acquisition has been the route forward for those guys yeah in terms of finding you know similar sized businesses that Those guys recently were like 18, I think 18 years they've been going. Yes, I mean a case study I would give this is a client we work with, he's probably We've worked with him since sort of 550 turnover. He's up near 800 now. He found a local business um, that was turning over 800, 400 GP, maybe 150 net profit. And the guy was in his sort of 60s and just said, look, I'm looking for someone trusted to hand the business over to. I don't want to give it away, but um, we'll come up with something fair and reasonable in terms of a, a repayment plan and agreeing the valuation, etc. cetera. Um, and, f- Coming up with a a stage payment profile for that business actually meant that, and I'll try and keep the numbers simple here, but my client paid £14,000 in legal fees, but added £1.2 million to the valuation of his agency on completion. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was a pretty and good and almost doubled
1: his almost doubled his turnover in one quarter, yeah. yeah. Which and, and would have he, taken
0: another another eighteen years probably. No, or maybe he, not eighteen years. That's probably a bit harsh. And really. because he cares about the product, he cares about the people, he cares about the process. Because that's his mindset. Yeah, he can probably would, make, make that work better? better. Yeah, 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 yeah you're, you're right. right. I mean, I was sitting there saying to the guy, "I think there's gold in
2: this guy's client base. So really, it's some great names in there. It's what I call sleeping giants. Really, <laughs> accounts that haven't really been farmed over the years it's just the the old agency only the phone would ring you pick up react take the order and deliver the work but actually a little bit of proactivity and I think uh, to get this right we had a whatsapp message from the guy the other day saying he had 300,000 yeah. of opportunities Already. in the first six weeks since that acquisition you just going to shake the tree a little bit
0: yeah.
1: Yeah, because he's got the, our client. I mean, it's actually, it's unusual. We don't normally work with clients that small, but we went in because we actually helped him buy out a shareholder. So actually, it's a bit of a, it was an interesting one for us. And we kind of yeah. liked him. yeah. And we sort of stuck around because we kind of believe in him a little bit. But the fact that he'd separated the AMPM PM side out, meant that his AM, his account management, manager could be more proactive and yeah. do that. Yeah. Whereas before, because they're project managing as well, they can't, they just react to what the other guy had, because reacting all the time does well, do both A and P. You
0: know, look, I, I, wherever I've been, I've split the similar role out. Yeah. You either end up with a PM who doesn't want to sell anything, or you end up with an agent yeah. who just couldn't project manage to save their lives. It's really super yeah. rare, and the problem is under half a million turnover for oh, an
1: GP for an agency, you don't, you, don't really have you, a choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, That's but nice. just everyone listening, just to know that normally we find about six fifty k GP. They split that out, so it's but all these numbers
0: are in the book, which is you know the book's full of numbers. So, other than numbers. your books and uh, the book you've already recommended, what? one or three books that
2: we reckon people should the reason I do what I do now is because I love business and I remember leaving I think it was maybe just before I started college and I did a business studies kind of uh, it was a GMBQ at the time three A levels worth of business studies and I remember reading um, Richard Branson's book when it first came out about 24 25 years ago Uh, so I love reading entrepreneurial stories so for me uh, the Duncan Ballantyne autobiography is one I always go back to. some great entrepreneurial stories in there. It's actually quite a funny read as well Uh, one thing sticks in the mind you know about credit control and you know only pay the screamers was one of his (laughs) phrases uh, which is like and then the other one actually I read on holiday about two years ago it's a recommendation from Spencer and Mark who works with us as well Uh, Maverick by Ricardo Semler great book That is is a great book I absolutely read that literally non-stop over like a two day period sat on the sun lounger Mm -hmm. and it was a guy who ran um, a sort of conglomerate of businesses in South America in the 80s Mm -hmm. but all the the modern day working practices we're talking about now yeah. you know the flat structures all that kind of stuff he had in like 1981
0: it's <laughs> yeah. amazing but it is you're a fan fantastic of that book. Oh, I love that yeah, book yeah, I love yeah. that book you, he yeah. did a fantastic interview <laughs> with oh, Tim Tim Ferriss yeah. and Tim Ferriss is asking him about because one of the things he does is in the book he fires he fires all his old man it's because it was his father's business he fires the old guy yeah. and he's in Tim Ferriss is talking to him he said his dad went on holiday so he took the opportunity yeah. night of the, the long night away. while yeah. his dad was away Brilliant. to get rid of the ball because he knew if his dad came back and did like the timing yeah. he, the he phrase, said he
2: he, he, uh, it was like seek forgiveness and ask permission <laughs> yeah, so right. he
0: didn't he, <laughs> he said it would be quicker to do that than it would
1: be to change them all because yeah. they were just also set in their way which. So
0: I mean, yeah. One of the things in that book that sticks in my mind is that somebody put in a requisition for filing cabinets. So he gets everyone in at the weekend and they get rid of all the paperwork that they no longer need. And they've and got they 50 empty ones. And <laughs> they now <laughs> a surplus of five filing cabinets yeah. to sell. Yeah. It's just that... that I don't know
2: why that tickled me, but that's the type of... Well, there were lots of things in there that yeah. I find amusing. You know, like, yeah, you know, great book.
0: So. Yeah. What about you, Spencer? That's a couple from Pete.
1: God, I, I read so much. I've Reinvent got the so many. Yeah, I, read, I mean, do you know, there's a few... I a couple probably I mean the first one I always talk about which was referred to me by a good friend of mine who I knew was a massive fan of of, um, Tony Robbins I always found Tony Robbins difficult because I'm always a highly motivated person whenever I hear him talk I feel like like he's positive like I am and I need someone different but she said um, his mentor was a guy called Jim Rohn and Jim Rohn he says is quoted everywhere because it's on the internet and you see all of his great sayings but he uh, wrote a book called The Art of Successful Living, which I've only got on a CD-ROM, or CD, not a CD, an audio CD, which means I can't play it anymore because I've got no... Know, but I remember listening to that and it really fixed... It validated my mindset a lot, and I still go back to it now and try, you know, put it on my PlayStation now to listen to it. But I, I still find that um, Jim Rohn had just a really good philosophy around having the right mindset. And it's funny, when I read all Peter Drucker's books, which I, I would recommend to read because they're really quite tough to, to get through... At the end, he kind of concludes, it doesn't matter what you know about business management, it, you know, it's all, it's all superseded by mindset. In fact, he was the guy that said culture trumps uh, strategy. Yeah. And, but, you know, he said all, at the end of the day, it all comes down to mindset. If I'm going to so I think that's what one of the other things we have probably learned over the last eight years is, you know, mindset trumps everything. I really like Nikki Gatsby's book Super Engaged yeah. which is kind of I'm a bit jealous of and envious because <laughs> it's the book I wish I could have written but we kind of wrote a book that covered every aspect of agency life but I just I love what she's done and yeah. I think she deserves a lot of credit for yeah, it yeah she was a great guest was she on your yeah, show? yeah I spoke to oh, her. oh see how did I not know that I
0: spoke to her a few months ago yeah. oh
1: you have to send, tell her that I recommended <laughs> her book <laughs> but yeah I think it was almost thought that
2: bit was set up
1: <laughs> no I, I, I can't believe I missed it I need to go back and, uh, and listen to that
0: interview right guys thank you very much indeed that's right, thank you. thank you cheers thanks very much for having us on all this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast there you'll find show notes additional reading and links related to this episode you can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter the simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively not crack once a week newsletter where I'll update you on what I've been up to the most interesting articles I've read and all things relating to scaling up high performing teams net promoter score company culture etc social you can find me on twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments thanks for listening